Dance is very accessible and it can be really engaging and really fun. Audiences are out there for the classical art forms and you just gotta find ways to engage with them on their terms. And that's what we really try to do. We love to make our audiences laugh. And if there's anything that's hard is to make audiences laugh, especially in ballet. Hello, and welcome to the Theater Art Life podcast. Sponsored by Harlequin Floors, world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. The Theater Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Roll. On this episode, Bengt Jorgen shares about his work bringing dance to all kinds of communities, large and small, urban and rural, across Canada. Bengt Jorgen is a co-founder of Canada's Ballet Jorgen and serves as its artistic director and CEO. In 1992, his artistic vision led to the formation of a partnership with George Brown College in Toronto, where he is the artistic director of the full-time dance program. Bengt strongly believes in classical ballet as a powerful language and foundation to engage contemporary audiences with dance. He is committed to ensuring ballet is relevant to and has a place in the life of Canadians living in communities from coast to coast. Hello, welcome. Thank you. Yes, welcome to Theatre Art Life. Now, you are a founder of a ballet company. So how did what was the pathway that led you to that point, Bengt? I was a dancer, still am a dancer. I think of myself as a dancer, even though mainly my work is as a choreographer now because I'm getting older. But I still go on stage, you know, if there's an older rule. Right now we're doing Anne of Green Gables, the ballet, and so I'm the backup Matthew, the old guy. Uh, but basically I was a dancer. I started when I was very young. My mother loved dance. Put me in uh, ballet school in Stockholm. And then uh, she um, wanted me to audition for the Royal Swedish Ballet School. I did. I got in. And my path was sort of set uh, first through the big company. And then I went to the United States and Canada. I did my graduate studies here in Canada. Fell in love with the country. Fell in love with the National Ballet of Canada at that time. Spent three years there. And then I needed to strike out on my own. And um, I've never stopped ever since. That's amazing. And Anne of Green Gables, the ballet, that sounds uh, interesting to me. I loved that series when I was a child. Absolutely loved it. Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's a perfect story for us to do. It's a Canadian story. Uh, it's never been done as a full-length ballet. There's been a shorter version done. Didn't quite work out as well as it hoped, partially because it's a big story and it takes some time to sort of try to tell that story in, in, in an evening. It's a story from uh, the east coast of Canada, Atlantic Canada, where we have a hub. And we happen to perform in the in Severed Island every year and very close to Cavendish, which is the foundation. And it is close to our mandate, which is we only dance original works, meaning it was a new creation. And we only dance works by Canadian artists. And we try to work all our major classics into a Canadian setting. So even our Swan Lake and Nutcracker and Sleeping Beauty, they're sort of the mainstay of ballet companies. They're all set in a Canadian context. That's amazing. How did you get to this idea of reaching all kind of communities and like, let's say, translating this language to something that was more familiar to the community that you're talking to? Well, I started out, uh, as I said, at the National Ballet, and I struck out as a choreographer uh, from there. 
And originally, I just used uh, dancers in Toronto, my friends really from from that company. I, I realized very early on, it was hard to work in ballet without having a company structure. Uh, ballet is sort of it tends to be done as, in a group environment. It's not the same as being independent. The modern dance community and other dance forms sometimes have a lot of independent artists, but ballet was hard to do works without that. So I, I formed a company, and as part of forming a company, I really wanted to support a development of new choreography, and not just by myself, by other choreographers as well. And quite early on, I realized that there were some really great works that it seemed great to me, but they didn't sort of resonate as much as I thought they would with a, uh, a sort of a downtown Toronto urban audience, which is relatively limited when it comes to dance, sort of that hardcore audience. It wasn't very large. So I thought we should test these works in other settings. And it turned out that some of these works were hugely successful outside of the sort of traditional dance crowd. And they were speaking to a broader audience. And so that's where everything started, where it was like, well, maybe we should try to find the right audience for the right kind of work. Instead of saying, well, this audience didn't like this work, maybe there's another audience that will. And so that's how we started the concept of sort of touring. And we and we became hugely successful in finding, you know, we basically found the audiences for the works rather than sort of doing work in one place and expecting people to come and see it. Different communities, different demographics responded differently to different works. And and so a work that sometimes didn't seem successful when we first premiered it could turn out to be far more successful later on once we found a different type of audience uh, for that work. So that's how it started. And from there on, the other thing we realized is Canada's a gigantic country. It's the second largest country in the world. But when it comes to dance, it is pretty, pretty sparse. Professional dance is what I'm speaking about. Outside of sort of the downtown course of a few of the major urban centers, there's nothing, very little. And so as we started doing, you know, it started out with trying to find audiences for, you know, original works that we felt needed an audience. We realized there was a gigantic audience out there that had no access to professional high quality dance. And from there on, it sort of just rolled on. And what we also realized early on is that dance is very accessible. And it can be really engaging and really fun. But uh, that means that you have to do a lot of different types of works. And when I first started out, sort of the dance scene was very narrow in terms of the type of works it did, sort of postmodern work and a lot of angst. And, you know, we sometimes call them watch paint dry works. You know, you have to really delve in and engage and, you know, you better have a cup of coffee before you go. And, you know, it's a lot, a lot of engagement and people just don't have time for that in many cases, but they love dance. And sometimes they just need, you know, uh, different types of work in different types of settings. And, uh, you know, we did a combination of Rome and Juliet many years ago with <clears throat> the Canadian Opera Company, Stratford Festival and the Toronto Symphony. And we were the ballet component. And uh, it was for high school students. And that was in Toronto. They would bus people in from everywhere. And I remember that the sort of surveys afterwards is said that the dance part is the one that really got the audiences engaged. So this would be teenagers, what we consider a tough audience, high school students uh, for classical arts. And, you know, I remember in some cases we could hear them talk back to us as we were doing the fight scenes and they were commenting on the characters and it was very much alive. But just that fact that dance was the one thing that really got them engaged as teenagers and these in many cases they hadn't seen opera or you know theater or 
or obviously they weren't necessarily classical music fan or classical ballet fans, but they really enjoyed the dance portion. So it, it sort of taught me that audiences are out there for the classical art forms, and you just got to find ways to engage with them on their terms. And that's what we really try to do. And uh, through that, we feel that we are doing something really helpful to building community and, uh, you know, finding ways for people to love what we think is great art, you know, classical art. We, we think is a great language and uh, there's really no end to it. There are so, you know, if you think, you know, we, we could travel every day of the, the year. We could do performances every day. It's not a problem with audiences. And yet people keep telling me that, well, you know, it's hard to find audiences for, you know, audience. Are, I, I don't know what they're talking about. But it requires that you are adapting what you do to the environment that you're performing in. So, you know, which is kind of obvious. If you go into school, it's a different environment and maybe you need to do a different repertoire or you may set it up differently or, you know, people are really pressed for time right now. So if you want to do, you know, an evening work, that's tough for many people. But if you have a 15 minute work or five minute work, or if you do it in a place where it's really easy for them to access it. It's a totally different thing. So the challenge, I think, is for us to think about how we use our art form to reach people. If we expect people to just keep coming to the same place, a theater, open in the downtown core, and we do a lot of that too, and we love it. It's very easy, very convenient uh, for us, uh, for people to come and see us from everywhere. It's much harder (laughs) for us to constantly move out there and find different venues and and in some cases, not theaters and, you know, performing in, in whatever environment there is and adapting what we do to that environment to deliver an experience that's unique. But if you do, you're going to reach people that may never have come to see you before. So it's become a sort of a, a normal thing for us, but it's an evolution that started with a simple thing that we realized there were some really great works that didn't seem to go over so well for this one specific crowd. But we switched the crowd and all of a sudden the work was, you know, had a great response. So that's really what it came down to. We're, we're looking for, you know, if you don't like the work, we try to find a crowd that does. That's sort of how it works. <laughs> that's it's resonating. I was going to ask you, you know, yeah. how do you get to those communities? And it sounds like you, that one of your approaches is to get out of the theatre and into spaces where people may see the work. So can you explain a little bit? Because I find that quite interesting. Like you said, there is a lot of talk about people not coming to the theatre and, you know, with so many stimulus in other ways, you know, and on-demand entertainment that people can achieve without going to a scheduled performance at 8pm in a particular theatre. I think the future of entertainment really has to go and be a little bit more innovative to capture people's attention. So can you tell us a little bit about then, you know, what other sort of venues you've chosen or ways you've um, adapted so that you could get to certain communities around Canada? Well, I mean, in in a nutshell, in some ways, we're just an old-fashioned touring company of the kind they had in the, in, you know, in the 20s and the 30s and, and even before that, where you just had to get out there and just hit the road and go to whatever venue was willing to pay you a dollar. And that's kind of the same thing. If you're willing to pay us, we'll probably be there. Uh, because no matter what we do, we still need to pay our artists so that, you know, money is important. And if anybody's willing to pay us a fee, we'll probably be there and figure out how to do that show. But, you know, one of the key things for us was not to create productions that can really only live in one environment. 
um, so that the productions are like accordions. You can sort of expand them into big places and you can shrink them into others. But the other thing for us was, and I guess this is what it really comes down to, is that we we feel that it's all about the dance, that sure, we can do the big ballets and people expect a certain number of costumes, etc. But we always focus on, you know, sort of the simple beauty of movement. And, you know, we love to tell a story where the set and costumes are sort of almost minimalistic, but it shouldn't feel that people are having a dress-down production, you know, and this is what usually happens when you build a giant production, looks great in a big theater, and I have to take it on tour into a small venue. You have to, like, it, it feels like you're somehow compromising the essence of the work. For us, it is, the essence of the work shouldn't be about that. It should be about the nucleus of the dancing, the storytelling, and we have these elements that enhances and give people that sense that they're seeing a grand, great ballet, but it has to be adaptable. And so you can't see that it is now in a venue that is much smaller than the venue before. Uh, and if you're in a big venue, you don't want to feel like, well, you're missing something here because this, this was designed for a venue where they didn't have the ability to do all the bells and whistles. So if you don't create for the facts, to use that term, and you create for the art at the core of what you do uh, and the storytelling through movement, then those other effects don't even matter so much. They just become part of like sort of signals. It's sort of, uh, you know, we want to create, it's, a, it's like an element of a costume. And we have some productions with gigantic numbers of costumes. And so don't get me wrong, they're there. But we always want to try to make it as little as we can get away with. So even in our Swan Lake, I mean, we have a bunch of swans and we have all of the tutus, but they, but even in the costuming, it's very, very simplistic and elegant. And so the whole concept is simple, simple elegance to our design elements. And at the end of it, it's all about the sort of core of the storytelling and that it really doesn't matter the stuff around it. It's, it's just supporting. So I think that's part of it. We're building our productions to fit any place. And we do it because the essence of it isn't about the sets and costumes. They're there, but it's not the key. And I think that that's what makes, we, we're trying to basically humanize ballet. It's supposed to have it as a, as this sort of thing that people admire from a distance with these perfect bodies. Uh, you know, we have another thing. We, we don't, ha- we don't use any, measures such, such as height or size we hire people that look completely different and the effort the key for us is you need to create unity through how people move and it, not by putting a bunch of people that look the same uh same height sort of same whatever trained the same way that that's that's great it, it's certain easy but where's the art and basically you know lining up people that look the same way for us the art is in here a bunch of different people that that look much more like the communities that we serve. And somehow they go on stage and they become one and they move as one and people don't see the differences because they are transcending the differences. And that's where, to us, where ballet and dance becomes this extraordinarily powerful and engaging art form. Basically, it's like imagination. Uh, instead of putting a, a giant out there, we, we try to create so people see the giant without the giant actually being there. So that's, you know, we don't always succeed, but by always striving and having that sort of focus on just beautiful, fun dancing. And we think of ballet as a language where you can tell you can tell whatever story you want. And 
you know, whoever wants to do it can do it. But it is a language rather than an aesthetic. And that frees us up in a whole other way. And we don't have to, you know, we can do the Swan Lakes and we can do the great classics, but we can also do other stories like Anne of Green Gables. And it's a ballet, but they're totally different, but there's the same language, but we're just using it differently. And it makes it fun. And we love to laugh as a company. We love to make our audiences laugh. And if there's anything that's hard <laughs> is to make audiences laugh, especially in ballet. But we love to do that because once you laugh, you break down some barrier and you can engage with it and it becomes natural and it becomes easy to access emotionally and culturally. You know, there's not that wall. And we're just like the people in the audience. We just happen to be passionate about ballet and there might be people out there that are passionate about car mechanics or driving fast cars or, I don't know, sailing or whatever. But, you know, we happen to be passionate about dance, but that's really the only difference between us. Uh, you know, we're crazy passionate about what we do and we have to devote every moment to our, of our lives to it. But in any other way, we're kind of just normal people. And it's very important, I think, to connect with audiences. What we do on stage is unique but we are not unique outside of the fact that we just happen to be passionate about that. And so talking down to an audience is a problem. But once you can, you know, make people laugh, usually, you, you know, it, you break those barriers and it becomes, you know, you become comfortable with each other. And, and that's a big part of what we try to do, make people comfortable so they can just enjoy the show. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. Feels to me like you're basically trying to take the essence of what ballet and dance was and strip it of all the convention and all the tradition that has been built around it. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think you're right. I mean, we don't mind doing traditional ballet, but let's use Sleeping Beauty as an example, right? It, it's, a, it's a production that was created by an autocratic regime to glorify, really, ultimately, its, its, its own power. Uh, looking back at another autocratic regime, <laughs> and it's like, we don't live in that world anymore. And we don't even like that world. I mean, certainly not in Canada, we don't. And uh, most Western countries, we're not into that anymore. Like that's, that's gone history. We're not interested. So why create a sleeping beauty that harks back to that and basically just tries to like, and for many young people, they don't even get what the heck this is all about. You know, you have all of this so we just went, no, heck with that. We're going to we're gonna tell the story about how the rose got its thorns, and which in, in you know, many cultures, you know, Sleeping Beauty is uh, basically like turned rosa. So uh, we used it in a, a Saskatchewan Indigenous tale, and we're telling the same story, but that just freed us up to not, it wasn't about glorifying 
you know, this this court and this like sort of constant, usually costume parades is what it becomes with lots of people. And it's like, you know, we're just burning cash here for what purpose? Uh, and, you know, why Why does an audience really want to look at that? So, you know, we found a way to balance the great classic, but to do it in a, in a, in a way where we could speak to the cultures that we have in Canada, to people today, but still have the great music and have some of those great elements that people think of as in Sleeping Beauty. Very much, it's exactly that. It's, it's also just recognizing that ballet has evolved for hundreds of years, I mean, you know, it goes up and down and up and down, uh, and somehow it always survives. Every time everybody thinks of oh, ballet is dead and over, and right, and it's still here, and it's you know, so many times it's been declared dead. And I think, you know, we're in a place now where ballet ended up in a strange kind of place in the late 60s, 70s. It was kind of big, but it sort of lost its way, and in many cases, it's become a little empty, right? Not everywhere, but. The people have lost, you know, and it's sort of become more about a form and f- conventions and a little bit about trickstery sort of, you know, turns and jumps, which are really great for about 15 minutes. But after you've seen, you know, if you go to a ballet competition after about 10, 15 minutes of, wow, I can't believe, you know, that was eight turns. or that was nine turns or wow. After a while, like, OK, great. Like it's gymnastics. It comes to a point where where's the, <laughs> why are we doing this again? <laughs> So I think some, and, and this is this is uh, you know in within my own community, I think the greatest fear is for many is that ballet sort of is not this this popular art form that it was. Uh, you know when the rave came over and sort of revitalized the, the perception of it, uh, and it was it was earlier in the 30s and 40s and 50s. But to me, we've never been in a better place because our da- dancers have never been as well trained as they are today. You know, honestly, like we look back and, and, you know, we had some great dancers. But if I look at on average, the average ballet dancer today is better fit. <laughs> they, you know, they, they cross train, they can do stuff. Uh, and, you know, in general, they have a te- technical ability on the tricks level anyway, that's way beyond what the average dancer had just 20, 30 years ago. But somehow we haven't been able to harness that in the same way but i think it's just percolating because our dancers today they just the range what they can say with their bodies is just fantastic compared to what in my generation we couldn't do nearly as well and so i think you know the sense i have is that uh things are are happening and changing but in some ways we have to strip away this idea of what ballet is and just it's it's a language and get on with it and start doing something interesting with it. Start doing stuff that people really want to see. And because they think it's fun and cool, not because it's effect driven. It's not about how many turns you do and, you know, but to do something with it. It's like writing a book, right? Uh, You know, we, people keep writing the same book the same way and people are bored with it. You know, write a new book, you know, use the language, people get it. And we have lots of well-trained people around the world that get this language is fantastic. Let's let's get on with it and writing some some more interesting books for a broader audience because sometimes again we're down to this sort of we're, you know people are creating works for these sort of static audiences. But most of the people <laughs> have never gone to ballet in the world. Most of the people are not sitting, you know, not going to opera houses and are not, you know, it's not the same boring audience. I say it's, it's not because they're boring because we need them, but but you know, they're sort of you, you need to bring new people in. 
And in order to do that, you need to write new stories and use the language to be um, saying something relevant to these people. And you said also in your earlier that you, you know you open up to a, a a wider spectrum of you know body types and people from different demographics. So that must also feed into the accessibility from from a holistic perspective for people seeing uh, different bodies on stage and also people having opportunity on stage rather than because historically when you think about ballet dancers you think tall, slim. Uh, you know, of a certain height and certain weight and that sort of thing. I, I love the idea of that being expanded into, you know, if, allowing all types of body types in, onto that onto that space. Do you think that's also made it a little bit more of a evolution and more entertaining for for audiences to see that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that idea of a ballet dancer is relatively recent. So, you know, if you go back 100 years or so, you would see dancers that didn't look at all like these tall, slim, skinny dancers. That's sort of where we ended up. And I think it has been a little bit of a dead end for ballet uh, because ultimately it's how well you dance. And how you and, and that has nothing to do with whether you're hot, you know, you're tall or short. Uh, it became about the aesthetic. And it was sort of a cheap way to achieve the, a beautiful aesthetic. And the hard way is to, you know, to take any body type, but these are the great dancers and they can use the technique and they're beautiful in how they work the technique. Uh, but we got stuck in this idea of, well, you know, already it's like we measure and it's like, oh, well, they're not flexible enough. And, you know, most of the great dancers that I know of, were, you know, if you put them in that little box that they now, you know, many some ballet schools check them out. You know, they're flexible enough and this and that. And even I was like, you know, they bend in my, they bent my feet and did all of this stuff. Right? Like most of them wouldn't make it through that today. Some of the great dancers, because it was really the great dancer because they overcome limitations. You know, they're not perfect in every way. And I think that the dance form as a technique, if we go to that, to the language of ballet. Sure, there's clearly some body types that will obviously have more problems and there, and, than others. But fundamentally, you can do ballet very well in a very healthy way and get great control of your body, no matter what body you have. And that's where you want to work from. Now, of course, to be a professional dancer, you have to be extraordinarily good. But height has nothing to do with being a great dancer. And most of these very, very slim dancers are struggling to do some of the technical aspects that, you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago, they could do much easier because their physique was different. They were stronger. Uh, you know, you're long and slim. And sometimes we've had, you know, lots of problem with eating disorders in ballet. It's a terrible thing, right? Like, and, and if you think about it, like ballet dancers need to eat well because they need great bodies. They need to have energy. This idea of the slim dancer that's starving themselves, and it's, it's because people have thought of this as a beauty concept, which is not just in ballet. It became sort of a fashion concept, but it actually goes against building great ballet dancers because some of the technical, particularly for women, when you think of some of those uh, technical steps that came out 100 years ago uh, or earlier, um, you know, 200 years some great ballerinas, you know, this jump on points, like, I mean, depending on their bodies and, you know, you need to have superb strength and physicality and, you know, slim, skinny, weak kneed and weak boned, uh, the sort of plastic thing that's that evolved, particularly, you know, 50s, 60s into the 70s. That's almost an aberration of if you want to have a great 
technical ballet dancers that can do the range of steps without hurting themselves and power. So, yes, I mean, in some ways, what we do is probably harking more back to how ballet dancers were 100 and 150 years ago. And you look at pictures and you don't see these skinny little, <laughs> you know, tall dancers. Uh, but it did become, um, it, it certainly did become sort of this, the narrative for ballet. And I think it, it's, it's been a problem for us. And many people today, many, many families, and particularly many mothers, don't want their daughters to end up in that. And I, every time I read about someone, and sometimes in related arts field, they're very successful, say I used to take ballet, but, you know, I just couldn't handle the the body image pressure i was like well we lost obviously a great artist that maybe would have been a great ballet dancer because somehow they were put under this this pressure and you know sometimes it ruined people's lives and we certainly don't want to be part of that and yes we do get a lot of positive feedback for not projecting that imagery on stage with our dancers but i don't think at the end that is the key to what we do it's an effect of what we do but it is an easy way to make the companies look better and more interesting. And it goes, you know, we talk about inclus- inclusivity today around color, which has become a very big issue. Um, and ballet in general has been very wide, at least in Western Europe. You know, this this goes to the heart of this, too. You know, just pick individuals that are great dancers and don't, you know, as soon as you, you're trying to look people because they need to fit in. You know, I don't think it's about finding, you know, black dancers or artists of color that look exactly like that archetypical tall skinny dancer you know sure if that's how you want to do it you can do that but i think it's really about just finding great dancers and it doesn't matter what they look like like once you get there you get to a very freeing point of view and you can say well it's not about how they look it's about how they dance it's about how how you use the technique to tell stories it's how you free you know we we have this term techniques should set you free and when you see a great dancers because there's this enormous freedom and so if your your focus is there rather than the aesthetics of how people look, I think you've already kind of traveled a long way to where we need to go as an art form to just get on with being relevant to the people that live today. That's amazing. So what's your favorite thing about your job? I love being in the studio. I love working on the details of the classical ballet technique. I love learning how little I know <laughs> every day uh, as we go and we try to do what we do better. And I realize I should have paid more attention to my teachers. <laughs> oh, my God, really, like for 30 years, I've just refused to do, you know, but then you go back. And so trying to just make everyone in the studio, all of us come to really uh, love what we do uh, and get better every day realizing that the technique is so powerful and so strong. And, you know, I'm still doing ballet class every day and I probably shouldn't be showing myself doing ballet class because, you know, at my age, I can't do things the way I should, but I still discover sort of the, the inherent beauty and power. And it gives me great pleasure when I kind of go, aha, I get it. And I can really, and, and now you can help a younger dancer achieve that much faster than all the years that it's taken me so it feels like we're revitalizing at least in our little bubble and we certainly live in a bubble we know that but we love our little bubble and we know that the better we can do this and the more we can we can respect the traditions and show that the traditions really is a great way to communicate today 
you know, we convert people one by one and, and, uh, you know, that's a great feeling. I'm going to ask a question that I think has had already many answers, but still going to ask it. If you could change one thing about the industry or your job, what would you change? I think that when it comes to ballet, it would have been better for all of us if those of us that came through the large institutions, and I did, and I did get um, some great training along the way, but I don't know how to put this. There's a certain sense of arrogance or acceptance of behavior uh, in some ways that isn't really right. I don't know. I'm not saying it's the right way because I do love what I do and, and I'm not trying to put our profession down. I think in the arts in general, sometimes there's too much diva stuff going on. And uh, it, sometimes as we talk about great art, we can excuse things that shouldn't be excused. And, you know, building workplaces that are fun, engaging, and uh, involve everyone in a way that allows that creativity to flow, not so hierarchical. Great art can be fantastic, beautiful, but it can also be almost a way to keep people out. It's like, you know, it's like a club or a, a, a filter and, you know, people feel great because they get it and others don't. I, I know I'm not saying it's the right way. There's there's something, you know, someone put it once to me that, you know, a lot of people go to the art because they think it's a great place to work because we're different. But in, in many cases, arts organizations aren't that great to work in. They're not always great environments. Uh, and I think if we could make arts organizations from top to bottom more modern, I mean, think about many of our organizations are built around concepts when labor was cheap in the 19th century, symphonies, opera companies, ballet companies. The problem we have today is very expensive because we're built around these concepts of big ballets or, you know, symphonies that need a lot of people. And we have structures and hierarchies that really haven't changed uh, for hundreds of years. You know, the world is modernized around us. And I think that Sometimes you find happy organizations, but in general, I, I think arts organizations, compared to many organizations that I come in contact with through my life now, just to, as, you know, reaching out and working with so many different types of organizations, I think we're not always in sync with, with the world we live in, in the way that we should, to better reflect and be better organization and provide better workplaces. And I think artistically, we would do more interesting work as a community overall. Um, we're a little isolated. Um, so I don't know that that's a many ways to kind of dance around your question. But I think that if I had to go back, I think, you know what? I should have been nicer to people a lot earlier in my life. Uh, and And I mean that not because I think I was mean, but just, you know, we lived in this sort of like we were ballet, you know, we were, you know, privileged dancers and we go through these things i went to you know like we were these people looked up us and sometimes you know we weren't we were young and i think overall we could be more humble i guess as artists and if we're more humble we'll actually open up ourselves and and you you learn more so today you know we're so grateful because we tour into so many communities and sometimes we go into communities that are very poor and you know we learn so much and come to realize, you know, we really are privileged in the sense that we have this wonderful art form 
that it's just like it keeps us going and 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 we love it and it gets us you know gives us meaning in life and and uh it's warmth and um you know the more we are out with these communities the more we come to appreciate that and the more normal we become in interface because we interface on so many different levels with people and so there's something there where i wish that as a community we would be more humble and in that way open ourselves up to better dialogues with the people around us and and play a more important part as opposed to a little bit isolated and you know, high arts uh, has survived partially because it is funded well. And, you know, there are many of us that love it. But but I think there's a way for us to bridge this to a broader audience. So humble is a key word, I think. Less divas. <laughs> we need to stop bad behavior. When, you know, when bad behavior happens in a studio by a great artist, we we have all closed our eyes and, you know, excused it. And I think that the corrosive effect of that down the line it's not good. And I don't actually think it produces a great creative environment. And I, I think um, today we don't need that. We really don't need that. Well, Vint, that was, I mean, thank you so much for your time with us today. That was really inspiring. And I think your mission and your goals uh, are such a wonderful thing. And and I think Canada is lucky to have you for sure. Well, thank you for having us on the program. We, we try to uh, spread the word. Uh, you know, we are just a little speck on the ocean, uh, but if it inspires others to do similar things in their communities, it will have an impact. And hopefully one day we'll see other people do the same thing. And I'm sure there are people doing the same thing and just, you know, we don't know them, but maybe through you, a few people get to know us and they'll reach out to us as well. And that's a great circle. Thank you. Hopefully they do. That's yeah. our goal. That's for Thank sure. You. And a little speck, yeah. a little speck can be a little speck, but it can be an important one. So yeah, <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only thirty-eight US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.